we are in the third week of a sermon series called Yield. Uh, we're talking, we're reading, we're thinking, we're praying through the book of Joshua. Joshua is the story of God's people, the Israelites from thousands of years ago, and it talks about a critical moment in the history of the people of God. Let me just briefly remind you where we've been or catch you up if you haven't been here the last two weeks. The story of Joshua starts at a pretty critical uh, turning point. See, Israel had received from God a promise. God said, I'm going to bless you, and because I bless you through you, I'm going to bless all people. Whatever blessing God gives you, he wants that to become a blessing to other people. And then God said, and here's the thing, it's going to start, I'm going to give you this great piece of real estate. I mean, it's really a fantastic piece of real estate, and it's just 500 miles away. It's not that far. And it takes Israel 40 years to get to the promised land. 40 years of just going round and round, and we call it the wandering in the wilderness. Well, at the beginning of Joshua, where Moses, the old leader of Israel, has now passed on leadership to Joshua, at the beginning of Joshua, we have this, just this feeling of excitement and anticipation because finally, finally, I mean, 40 years, that's such a long time. Imagine being 40 years old. That's just such a, so old to be. I can't even fathom 40 years of time going by. It's a little, it's still fresh for me, people. It's still, I'm still getting used to it. I need to say it out loud. We'll get there, though. Thank you for supporting me. Um, and now Israel is excited because they're about to enter the promised land. And then we get chapter 2 where God reminds us of the way that God always does his work. See, because we have expectations. We see certain people. We see certain opportunities. We say, look at that. That looks so shiny and good and exciting. That's clearly the way that God is going to be at work. And Joshua sends out two people from the Israelites to go spy, to go check out this land that they're going to go into. And these are the two guys that you would assume... I mean, th th these guys know what they're doing. They are, the, they are the cream of the crop. They are the pick. I mean, Joshua chose them for a special mission, and they get everything wrong. I mean, they mess it up. By verse 2, they've messed everything up. And God says, see, I'm not going to work in the way you expect. Instead, there's a Canaanite woman who's a prostitute. Her name is Rahab, and she is the last person you'd ever expect. She's the one where you'd look at, and you'd be like, okay, there's no way God could possibly bring anything good out of this circumstance. And that's exactly the person through whom God chooses to work. So God sets the stage for the nation of Israel by reminding them, hey, we're going to go do this thing, but remember, I'm going to do things my way. Sometimes we need to check our expectations at the door. It was really one of the, it's a beautiful foreshadow of the gospel, that nobody is ever beyond hope, that no brokenness, that no past, that no history is ever too big for God to do his work through his people. And that brings us now to Joshua chapters 3 and chapters 4. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, open your Bible app. Uh, I'm not going to read all of chapters 3 and 4, though that would be fun, but you guys are welcome to, you know, read along while I talk, but let me uh, just sort of set the stage. So Joshua has moved his people, and they're having a camp out right on the banks of the Jordan River. They can look across the Jordan River. And can, they can see this land, Canaan, the, the piece of real estate that God has said, you're going to get this piece of land. 
And they've got their, you know, their new REI tents set out, and they've got their jet boils you know, around the campfires, and they're camping. And all of them are looking at this river between their campsite and this promised land. And at this point, I have to pause and I have to wonder. Was everybody looking at the river and looking around and going, we don't have any boats. We don't have the concrete necessary to pour a, a pylon to build a bridge. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't think they went to Safe Splash Swim School when they were children, so I don't know if they're able to swim. Like, are they looking around, seeing that there's no way they're getting across the river, and are they going, but you know what? We just know that God's going to make a way. Like, is, is everybody looking at this river going like, don't worry, God's got this, it's faithful. Or are they maybe a little more like me, maybe a little more like you, and they're looking at this river going, we just spent 40 years, and you brought us to the banks of the river, and the text tells us that it's at flood stage. I mean, the water is high, it is moving. I ain't going into that water. Like, I don't know, I don't care. You're going to have to, like, throw me or something. I, I just can't help but imagine that as this nation of Israel is standing on the banks of the river, a few of them might have a few doubts in their minds about whether this is really a good idea. Like, we... And so the people are all standing on the banks of the river. And we get to Joshua chapter 3 and 4. And as we talk through a couple key parts of it, I just want to tell you up front, there's, there's two things that in my mind, as I was reading, as I was praying through this text this week, two things that really rose to the surface. And here's what we're going to talk about, the, the message Joshua gave to Israel that I think just might be a valuable message for us to hear in our lives as well. Joshua teaches Israel how to consecrate and how to remember. If you fall asleep at this point forward and don't hear anything else, I say if you just zone out uh, and don't hear anything else, this right here is the moment. Uh, today I want you to think about what does it mean to consecrate your life and what does it mean to intentionally remember the work that God has done. These are the two things that we're going to talk about. We start out uh, Joshua chapter 3, uh, verse 5, right off the bat. In, in my mind, Joshua reads, the, you know, he kind of reads the room. It's a big room. There's a lot of people. We don't know exactly how many people, hundreds of thousands. And he reads the room, and, and I, my guess is he knows that some of the Israelites are looking at this giant river, scratching their heads, going, what's the plan? I mean, it's going to take us a while to build enough boats. I mean, Noah got a little while to build that ark. We haven't been working on it yet. And Joshua speaks to that doubt or that question or that, that wondering, and here's what Joshua says to the people. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecrate yourselves, for the Lord will do amazing things among you. And if you're like me, you might say, okay, Carl, what does it mean to consecrate yourselves? Let me talk just for a second about this big, wonderful word, consecrate. So uh, it kind of has two different meanings. First, to make or declare sacred, or it can mean to dedicate formally to a religious or a divine purpose. It comes from a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is kadash. Everybody say kadash. It's, it's a really wonderful word. It just kind of has this good sound to it. You can feel free to use it in your own life. I'm going to give you some ways 
to use it in your life. Kadash means to set apart or dedicate. If you are going to kadash a physical object, let's say, for example, this cup that we use for communion. Now, I could use this cup for anything. I could use this cup for when I wake up in the morning, I could pour my coffee into it and I could drink it. And you could make the argument that that is a sacred or holy purpose. I would go with you in that direction. However, we have set apart this cup and we've dedicated it to be a communion cup. In fact, I do not drink my morning coffee out of it to set apart or to de dedicate. However, if you were to take it more personally, it can also have the sense of to prepare yourself or make yourself ready. And sure enough, as you read through Joshua chapter 3, you see that Joshua spends a lot of time giving the people instructions about how they are to be ready to cross the Jordan. And in fact, he says, consecrate yourselves. Why? Because tomorrow, God is going to do amazing things. So I'm going to suggest this as a definition for kadash, for the purpose of today. It is to prepare yourself to see and celebrate God's work. If I'm going to set myself up, if I'm going to dedicate myself to God, it's going to be, I'm going to get myself ready. I'm going to organize my time. I'm going to organize my life. I'm going to put some structures in place. I'm going to put some plans in place so that I am ready to see and celebrate God's work when he shows up. The Israelites had some specific ways that they did this. They had some, uh, so, some sacrifice and worship rituals that they did. They had some dietary laws and some sort of purity rituals that they did. Uh, they would abstain from different things. They had a sort of a set plan in place. If we're going to kadash ourselves, this is how we're going to do it. Which, again, probably makes us wonder, well, how do we kadash? How do we consecrate ourselves and plan and prepare. I mean, my guess is, for all of us, planning for things, preparing for things, organizing things, making decisions about things, that's a pretty normal part of our everyday life. Who here spent some time the last week um, planning or organizing or preparing for something? Did, did anybody? Okay, so we have to plan, we have to prepare, we have to organize. The question is, for what are we planning and preparing? And my guess is we could spend a lot of time and a lot of energy getting prepared in a way that doesn't actually consecrate our lives. As I was thinking about this idea, how do we, how do we, how do we organize our time and our days and our energy to be ready, not just for whatever, but to be ready to see and celebrate God's work. Uh, I thought of the story of Lewis and Clark. Um, I don't know if, if you're a history buff, maybe you've read some books on Lewis and Clark. Uh, I read one book. It wasn't actually on Lewis and Clark, but it used, it used the metaphor of Lewis and Clark as kind of a leadership lesson. Uh, but it was really interesting because as I learned about Lewis and Clark, and, and you might know this, you know, they set out and President Thomas Jefferson chose them for this critical journey. At the point that Lewis and Clark began the journey, we had sort of explored the east coast of America, and we kind of made our way to about Omaha. Omaha, or mid-Nebraska, is where Lewis and Clark um, began their journey from. But their goal was, we know there's more land over there to the west. 
But we don't have a map of that land. We don't, we don't know how to get all the way across. And specifically, they wanted to find a water passage from Nebraska, from the eastern half of the U.S., all the way to the west coast of the U.S. And Lewis and Clark were chosen because they had proven themselves in military service to be phenomenal organizers and planners. And this is a big journey. I mean, you got to take a bunch of people, you got to go somewhere you don't even know where you're going, and you got to, you got to, you know, endure through all these hardships to find this route. So they get their stuff together, and they set out on a boating expedition up the Missouri River. And turns out, they're doing fantastically well. They've got the best boats money can buy. They've got the best crew. They've got all the gear and all the equipment. It takes them up into North Dakota. This is going just fine. It takes them all the way to Montana. Man, we're doing really, really well. Right up until the point that they run into this small little geographical formation called the Rocky Mountains. And they get to a place called Lemhi Pass. Now just picture for a second that you've got a bunch of boats. You've set out on a boating journey. You've got all the best boatmen in the world. And then you find yourself looking at this. I don't personally want a boat when I need to get through that. See, Lewis and Clark, phenomenal though they were, they were prepared for the wrong thing. Or rather, they were prepared for the right thing for the first part of their journey, but they were not prepared for what came next. Boating was not a good way to get over the mountains. The book that I read was titled, Canoeing the Mountains. And the invitation of the whole book is basically an, an invitation to say, hey, in our own lives, as we're trying to think about what God is doing and where God is leading us, as we're trying to prepare ourselves, we have to keep in mind that God might be preparing us, might be leading us for something other than what we've already seen. So it comes back to this simple question. Uh, we are, we talk about it all the time as a church, we are on a shared journey. We desire to be people who follow Jesus together and go wherever he leads us. And so the question is, if the journey we're on is a journey of following Jesus, are you ready for that journey? If you were to look at your days and your weeks and your months, if you were to look at the way you spend your time and spend your money and make your choices, if you were to evaluate the way you've organized your life, could you say, I am getting myself ready for what God is about to do? Or would you have to say, maybe I'm just getting myself ready for the things that I want to do? Have you organized your life so that you are ready to see and celebrate God's work? That, I believe, that work of organizing our lives to see and celebrate God's work, that is what it means to consecrate ourselves. So, the people have consecrated themselves, and Joshua has organized everybody, and he's chosen some um, sort of lay leaders to, to be in charge of making sure all the people get across, and he calls the priests to pick up the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark is 
the seat of God's presence in Israel at that time. And he says to the priest, all right, here's the plan. You're going to walk into the water. And everybody's looking. And everybody's watching. And everybody's like, that's your plan. That's the plan. Is this a good plan? This is the plan. It's going to work, people. You might not remember this, but it worked once in the past. I think it's going to work again. So the priests walk into the water with a covenant. And, and Joshua 3 and 4 describes for us uh, a miracle that, that could seem impossible. It, it, it's hard to picture. It's hard to imagine. Uh, but the text tells us that as the priests walked into the river, the flow of the river was stopped and the water was held back far upstream. So much so that the people were now able to walk across the Jordan River. And maybe it's a little irreverent of me, but I have to pause at this point and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean all the moms and dads with all their little kids running around, they walked across a slippery, muddy pile of rocks? I mean, how many times did they have to be like, all right, kids, no more throwing rocks, no more throwing rocks. No, you cannot stop and build a little mud castle in the middle of the Jordan. I don't know if you noticed this. There's a giant river that might come back down on us at any point. I don't care if you lost the dog. Just keep moving across the river. I mean, the mere fact that they got everybody across is a miracle in and of itself. And then Joshua does something really fantastic because the people have just seen God do an incredible thing. And that experience, however we conceive of it in our minds, that experience is so powerful. And Joshua makes a really profound leadership decision right after they cross the Jordan River. Here's what Joshua does. Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. The very first thing Joshua did after they came across the Jordan was he set in place a physical, tangible reminder. Joshua worked hard to ensure, or sorry, yeah, to ensure that Israel would remember. Would anybody be willing to acknowledge that sometimes even the best, the greatest things in our life, even the evidence, the good evidences that God has been present and in at work, you know, and present and at work in our lives, even when we know that we've seen God show up, whenever the next obstacle comes in front of us, whenever the next challenging circumstances, stances facing us, we just seem to naturally forget about all of that stuff standing behind us as a reminder. It made me pause and say, you know, okay, we're on a shared journey. We say, you know, like I said a couple weeks ago, we, we are people who want to join God in God's mission, who want to go where God 
leads us into the future, who wants to see God at work in us and at work through us. And as I was thinking about that in this story, I said, well, what does Centennial need to ensure we remember? What are the, what are the parts of our story, what are the ways that God has worked in our past that it's worth from time to time pausing and remembering, especially as we continue to have many uh, new people who connect with this congregation and, and find fellowship in this community. So I want to take just a second and share a couple stories from Centennial's past that I think highlight, uh, th- that are opportunities for us to maybe set up a stone of remembrance. Um, like, uh, like every church, actually, um, Centennial started as a church plant. Uh, all churches start as a church plant, because if you don't start a new church, you don't have a church. And we start as a church plant, like many, with, you know, a handful of people gathering in some different basements. Uh, for a while, we met in a bank. Uh, for a while, we met in a little shopping center, um, where now my kids take piano lessons at Children's Music Academy. That, for a while, was Centennial Covenant Church's place of worship. Um, we started as a little church plant. We uh, had a couple kind of founding pastors who for a couple of years started building that core group. Uh, but just a couple of years into the church plant, uh, the congregation, maybe 30, you know, 40, uh, 40 people at that point, called a man named Steve Tolson. He was our pastor for about uh, 35 years of our time at Centennial Covenant. And uh, with, with Steve and this community kind of committing themselves to following God, the church saw some really fruitful ministry. The church saw some new people starting to come and, and, and some health and growth happening. Um, and there's this great story that I just love. Steve tells it so well. Um, next time you see Steve, if you haven't met him, uh, introduce yourself. Uh, but next time you see him, he'll tell it as well. But he and his wife, Darlene, were driving around, and they were just kind of talking and praying about the life of the church. And they decided, let's pull over, and let's just pray. Uh, let's just pray kind of about what God's doing in, in our lives and in the life of the church. And they pulled over on this little cul-de-sac in Littleton, Colorado. It's just sort of a small little cul-de-sac. There was nothing around it. And they're talking, and they're praying. And, and the story goes, and Darlene's here, so if you want to get the full version of the story, you can ask her later. The story goes that in that time of prayer, they said, you know what, God, and if it's your will, we would just love someday for Centennial to have our own building. You know, we don't have to rent anymore. We don't have to, man, it'd be great if Centennial could have a piece of land and we could build, and heck, maybe even a piece of land like this piece of property that we're parked next to right now. You know where they were parked? On that cul-de-sac, right there. So Steve calls up the realtor. He's like, hey, what, uh, how, much for the, how much for this piece of land? Seven acres, how much? Um, uh, yeah, it's for sale for $2.5 million. And Steve says, okay, well, <laughs> the 30 of us don't have 2.5, Darlene, do you have $2.5 million? No, I don't have 2.5 million. Steve, do you? No. So they hung up the phone and said, well, we'll see. Over the next about six years, that realtor called back and would call back and say, okay, how about two million? Sorry. Okay, how about 1.5 million? Sorry. Until about six years down the road, they called back and said, okay, if you can get together in the next two weeks, $250,000, the property's yours. So our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, bought the property, held it for us until that small group of people, many of whose names are written on the charter of the church in the church office. If you've never been in there, go in the church office sometime. Just look at the charter on the wall. Many of our charter members are still 
attenders, members present, you know, in the life of our community today. And we were able to purchase the land that we currently are sitting on and worshiping on because God made a way that seemed completely impossible at first glance. Like many stories, um, the story of Centennial has some high highs just like that. And there's, there's endless others we could choose from. I can only share so many, and, and there's plenty of people here who would love to share other stories. But um, we've also um, seen evidence of God's faithfulness in some of the low lows. It's not surprising that any community of faith, any community of any sort, is going to have some challenging seasons. And maybe 12 years ago or so, there was a season uh, that, that I like to refer to as an identity crisis. It was a season where people in our community were arguing and divided and frustrated about who we were as a church. Are we this or are we that? Should we be this? Should we go this way or should we go that way? Should we express ourselves this way or should we express ourselves that way? And in the midst of this identity crisis, you know, people, I don't know if you know any people, but sometimes people, they do dumb things and they do mean things in the midst of conflict. And it turns out that sometimes in the midst of some disagreement and some challenge, people turn against whoever's standing up front. And so Steve was still the lead pastor and he went through a season where a lot of people were very critical of him. And, and mean towards him. And here's what I find myself thinking about as I think, what do we want to remember about the life of the church? Um, I don't know about you, but I, I don't really like criticism. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if any of you do like criticism, but I just don't like it. And on top of not liking it, I don't know if I'm actually very good at dealing with it. I, I work at dealing with it. I try to be healthy in it, but man, that's hard. If I try to imagine what it was like for Steve as a lead pastor to be in a season of of some pretty hard stuff, and if I were to try to imagine what it would have been like to receive some of the criticism he received, he hadn't done anything wrong, there was no moral failure, there was no big... If I were to imagine that, I, I just can't help but think to myself, Steve, that would be a really normal time for you to move on to the next church. He's a amazing pastor. So many churches would have hired him right away. Do you know what he and Darlene did? They prayed. They said, God, we're going to go wherever you tell us. If you tell us to stay, we're going to stay. If you tell us to go, we're going to go. And in a moment when it would have been so much easier to go, they heard God calling them to stay. And so they stayed. And saw another season, another decade of flourishing, fruitful ministry. A decade that was now built on a clear sense of who God had called us to be as a church. I've been using this metaphor for the Israelites on the wilderness wanderings that they were stuck in a roundabout. Many of you were at this meeting, but there was, a, there was sort of a, a congregational meeting where all of this sort of came to a head and Uh, one of our former members, Steve Johnson, stood up in that meeting and he said, it's time for us to get off the roundabout and start going where God is calling us to go. Centennial, Israel was not the only community of faith that God did mighty works in the midst of. You are part of a community of faith. And these are just a couple of the 
countless stories of how God has been present and has been at work in this community. We're here as recipients of the good work God has done. And these are just two of the moments, but we know that beyond it, many individuals have experienced healing and health and growth and transformation. People have found community and relationship. We've We've done the work of the church. We've celebrated joys together. We've grieved and mourned together. We've held each other up in our hands, doing what Christ called us to do. So let me ask you this, because all of you here are part of this community. If we know that God calls us to consecrate our lives, to see and celebrate his work, and to remember what he has done, what do you need to remember? What are the ways that you have seen God do beautiful things in your life? And if we don't set some plan in place, we're at risk to maybe forget the things that he's done. What, what are the stories of God's work in your life that you need to tell? I wonder if this week you could even find a time to share a story. Maybe it's connected to Centennial Covenant Church. Maybe it's not connected to this at all, but what would it look like for you to intentionally remember and then share some stories about the ways that God has worked in your life? Maybe, maybe you could even set up a stone of remembrance somehow. You could maybe like put a pile of 12 stones on your dining room table so that when your kids are like, why'd you put a pile of stones on the table? You could say, let me tell you a story of how God has done a great thing. And when you have friends over and they're like, that's a weird centerpiece. I don't know why you put 12 stones. If you want to find something other than 12 stones, that's fine. But how could we set up physical reminders of the fact that God has been and will continue to be present and at work in our lives? Because every single one of our stories matters in reminding us that the God we serve is a God who was and is and will be present and at work. Which brings us as always, to your move. See, the Israelites came across the Jordan. They saw God do great things, and they had consecrated and prepared themselves for the direction God was going to lead them in the future. That future, as we will find out, had some high highs and some low lows. It had some things go incredibly well, and boy, did they mess some things up. Almost like the story of just about any person trying to faithfully follow God. And so as we're talking about how do we learn to yield our hearts to God? How do we consecrate our lives, remember God's work, and get ready for what's in the future? I've, as I've said, we've got three uh, practices that I think can be really significant um, in how we can do that in our lives. First, meditate on God's word, like I talked about before. The word meditate actually means to get it on your mouth, to have it on your lips. There's like a vocal, conversational, relational part. Meditate in the ancient language, didn't mean close your eyes and think silent thoughts in your head. It meant get mouthy with God's word so that you can hear it and you can say it. What does it look like for us to keep God's word on our mouth on a regular basis? Practice curiosity. Whenever we're looking at something in life, and we look at it and we go, there's no way anything good could possibly come out of that. This is just... There's no way God could, could ever bring good out of this. Instead of falling into our hopelessness or despair, we can practice a curiosity that says, I wonder what God's going to do. 
When Rahab shows up in the story and you go, what in the world is this person doing in the story? We practice a curiosity that says, oh man, I'm excited to see what God's going to do that I would have never imagined he could. And third, and I want to talk just a minute about this third one, we can cultivate joy. As I think about cultivating joy, as I think about our story as a church and and the combination of all our stories, um, I found myself thinking about uh, the idea of of, um, what we're doing is we're building a, a kind of culture that we're trying to be part of. We want this community to be a certain kind of community, a certain kind of place where people are welcomed, uh, where where wounds can be healed, where relationships can be formed. We're trying to create a culture. But we know that we're trying to create a Jesus-following culture in the midst of all sorts of other influences that are not the grace and peace, the justice and forgiveness culture that God wants. And I've been thinking about that especially because uh, I've been listening to this podcast. Many of you have maybe listened to it as well. Um, It's a podcast about a church. It's called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And whether or not you know anything about that church, um, this podcast tells the story of a church culture that come to find out was not about the joy that God gives, but rather it was a culture filled with fear, with intimidation, with bullying, with just some really sad, um, painful, kind of toxic uh, forms of church. I mean, you find yourself going, is that that really really a church if it was as toxic as this story makes it seem? And the reason I think about it in in sort of here at Centennial is not because I, I think we're in that place at all, but because I do think we're humans. And so even if we have a great culture, we're at risk. We're always at risk of falling into some of the toxic things that our world can pollute us with. And so I think cultivating joy together protects us against these cultures of fear or toxicity that are out there and around us. And just to give you the image once again, because I, w- I want to tell this story all the time, um, the Scripture actually provides for us a, 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 this visceral picture of what joy means Um, I get to experience it often when uh, I pick up my son Asa from preschool. Or the other day when I came home, I was gone for the whole day, and Asa was out, and he was on his little blue scooter. He was scooting around the cul-de-sac. And I pulled up, and I parked, and I got out of the car, and Asa came around the corner on the sidewalk, and I just see him see me get out of the car, and he goes, Daddy! (laughs) And you know what it is when a dad sees his almost three-year-old on a scooter saying, Daddy! Do you know what that is? That is joy. And that is powerful. What would it look like if that was the culture of this church? And we just sang it. Scripture tells us all the time that God's face shines upon us. Like my face lights up when I see Asa, and Asa's lights up when he sees me. That is what God's face does when he sees every one of his children. We can cultivate joy by sharing our stories of remembrance, by remembering to consecrate our lives, to be ready for what God is going to do, by letting our faces light up when we see one another, by remembering whenever somebody else's face lights up when they see you, by remembering that that joy that you feel is the joy God wants you to have.
in your life this day. Would you pray with me? God, through Joshua, you taught your people to consecrate their lives, to be ready for your work. And then, God, you taught your people to remember the good work you have done. I pray that the same would be true for us, that we would remember all that you've done in our lives individually, in our lives as families, in our lives as a church community, the way that you have showed up so powerfully. We, ju we shared just a couple examples, but we know, God, we could go on and on because you have been present. Help us to be people who remember. And then, Lord, as we prepare now to take communion, help this to be a space where we consecrate once again our lives to be ready to join you in the work that you're doing. Amen.